It's been an exciting couple of weeks for gaming. On November 1st, Blizzard Entertainment kicked off its annual BlizzCon, an annual fan-oriented convention for its games that range from Overwatch to Diablo and World of Warcraft. Now Google is set to launch its own video gaming slash streaming service, namely Google Stadia, on November 19th. But in this episode, we're going to focus on good old board games. You know, the kind that you play with other people physically in the same room, maybe on a table with a physical board and actual game pieces. Between October 24th and 27th, the city of Essen in Germany hosted its annual International Spiegeltage Fair, known to be one of the biggest board game conventions in the world. Hello and welcome to Databytes. I'm your host, Susan Wong. Obviously, I'm not a board game pro. I'm a data scientist. In this episode, we'll look at how two statisticians use data to build a board game recommendation system. Stay tuned after the break. When I was growing up, I recall all the board games that I owned and loved were pretty traditional American board games. Monopoly, Pictionary, Life, and so on. As we look at the board game landscape now, what we find is that many of the top popular games are made by smaller private developers in Europe. Games like Ticket to Ride and Settlers of Catan. In fact, there's now a term called Eurogame, for which there's even a Wikipedia page that summarizes the trend for popular board games in today's day and age. Now, these games require less luck and more skill and tend to be far more involved. Games such as Pandemic, while not strictly speaking a Eurogame, also require different players to cooperate rather than work against each other uh, in the usual competitive manner. Needless to say, as games have evolved to favor increasing complexity in game mechanics, the time it takes to learn a new game has increased. In my experience, you can no longer casually just buy any top-ranking board game and expect everyone to learn to play it over the course of a dinner party. Well, you could, but then you'd be spending all your time explaining the rules and looking things up. So before you make the time investment in new games, wouldn't it be great to have a recommendation system that helped lead you to purchases that are worth your time and worth the learning curve? That's just what two statisticians, Phil and Sam Woodward, set out to do. In a recent article published on Significance magazine, Phil and Sam Woodward took their data from BoardGameGeek.com, an online database with millions of user ratings for 80,000 games as of April 14th this year, and they fed that into a recommendation system that they constructed. Now, BoardGameGeek.com is kind of like a Rotten Tomatoes, but for board games. And I do mention Rotten Tomatoes so that you can sort of make the connection from board games to movies, and you might remember the Netflix competition, which we've mentioned in numerous episodes. Many years ago, Netflix released a huge data set consisting of how its users rated movies they had seen and let the public compete to make recommendation systems that could outperform its own. Many such front-running recommendation systems in use today use a technique called collaborative filtering. Now, traditionally, collaborative filtering is basically a fancy term for a matrix factorization, and it worked really, really well. Given a set of ratings for multiple users, it could then output to you top recommendations for each of the users. And in fact, collaborative filtering is already used in a recommendation system found online at BoardGameGeek. The authors here wanted to take a different approach. In their minds, it's not sufficient to have an algorithm that simply recommends games that you will like based on what everyone likes. There are some games that are so universally liked that collaborative filtering will effectively recommend you to play those games, um, you know, the ones that are just the most popular. However, if you want your recommendations to get more personal, to get a little bit more niche, you might want to rephrase 
the research question. Rather than just trying to find the best game that you want them to play, the authors thought of it this way. The authors of the article thought about this in the following way. Their recommendation system, ideally, should begin with a game that you already enjoy. Let's call that a seed game. Let's say it's Ticket to Ride. Feed this in as an input into your recommendation system. And then the system should output a recommendation that someone who enjoys Ticket to Ride likes much better than someone who does not enjoy Ticket to Ride. So how do the authors make this happen? Again, let's use Ticket to Ride as an example just to make things a little bit clear. Let's take the data from all users who have ever rated Ticket to Ride in the Board Game Geek universe. We could group all such raters into two groups, those who enjoyed it and those who did not. For each other possible game in this data set, we can then compute a difference in mean ratings of those new games along these two groups. And then we can get a statistic and that statistic can then be ranked um, in order to output our primary recommendation. Now this calculation, if you think about it a little bit, might sound like a perfect translation of what the recommendation system is aimed at doing. However, the authors still found that it did not provide personalized enough recommendations and it still wound up giving games that were just generally popular. So they took a slight modification of their metric. Now this new metric required broadening their pool of data to also include users who have never rated their seed game, say Ticket to Ride here. So this is now a third group that we're considering. And their new metric for evaluating the game should be now defined as double the average rating for the new game among those who like Ticket to Ride minus the average rating for the new game among those who dislike Ticket to Ride and further minus the average rating for the new game among those who did not rate Ticket to Ride. This they term the like score. The authors reason that this treatment of the users who did not rate Ticket to Ride is similar to assuming that they rated Ticket to Ride unfavorably. Why might this make sense? The reason that you haven't rated a game might be that you didn't ever play that game. That in and of itself is sort of self-selection. It might indicate that you feel you wouldn't like the game. I probably won't ever buy the game risk because it just sounds too complicated to me when I hear it described. If there is evidence to suggest that the data, in this case the ratings, are not missing at random, then they just shouldn't be treated as though they are random, and omitting this final term is effectively doing that. So in the alternate formulation, the missing data are treated more as negative opinions of the seed game. If you aren't convinced that some of these choices are legitimate, you're rightfully skeptical. After all, anyone can come up with any metric they want, with which to compute rankings for any recommender system, right? You just have to take a score that you calculate, rank them from largest to smallest, and then take the top five to be your top five most recommended board games. To demonstrate that the system does well, it's really just important to evaluate the system in some way. The authors argue here that predictive accuracy, um, that is checking whether the recommended games are actually liked by those who receive those recommendations, is not sufficient. And more importantly, it's kind of not easy to do unless you put this recommendation system out there live into the wild for people to try and give feedback. There are two other aspects that the authors mention in their paper that they feel is important for assessing the success of an algorithm like theirs. 
So here, they mention the words diversity and novelty, and this refers to the ability of providing niche recommendations rather than the ones that are easy to like. After all, this is the thing that took them down this path of computing this like score in this exact way. Now, the secondary prioritization definitely makes the assessment a lot more complicated. It's really hard to think about how you might balance diversity and accuracy, and the two are clearly at odds with each other. Admittedly, here's where I think the article maybe hits its limitations. The authors come up with a regression model to do a series of what appears to be sanity checks rather than rigorous assessments of diversity and accuracy. Taking 200 of the highest rated games start, the authors computed the life score for all pairwise combinations of games. Now, just how many combinations are there? 200 doesn't sound like such a large number. Well, for each of the 200 games, there are 199 games that could possibly be recommended. So there's 200 times 199, which makes for a total of 39,800 pairwise combinations to consider. So imagine these like scores being calculated for all of these. The like scores um, are then used as the outcome in this regression model and it is predicted using the number of matching game attributes between the pair of games being considered. So these are attributes like the number of players that can play a game, the length of time that the game typically spans, and the designer of the game. And in our minds, it makes sense, right? If you have two board games that align on those different attributes, then someone who likes one game is more likely to like the other. So these number of matching game attributes is fed in as a predictor into this regression model. From the regression model, the authors confirmed a strong linear relationship between the number of matching game attributes and like score. Honestly, this does not sound like a huge revelation because it merely confirms that the like score is doing something sensible. The authors acknowledge that the only real way to know if the recommendation system is working well is to solicit feedback from its users who've given it a try. But leaving that aside, there are still some great ideas here that are worth talking about. In addition to testing out their system on just the top 200 games, the authors also expanded their system to use the entire Board Game Geek database, including a lot more obscure games. This is more challenging than just simply feeding in a much larger data set through the same code. The author described this as an example of a cold start problem. Imagine a game that is so obscure that there are very few users who have played it and therefore a very few users who have rated it. Now, should this game also use the same like score formula as the more established games? If so, relying on this like score for rankings can be a little bit challenging because the like score itself will be very noisy because the components of the like score are calculated based on small sample sizes. An alternative that the authors propose is to separately incorporate information on the new game based on the number of matching attributes with existing games. That is to say, since we know there's a strong correlation between the number of matching attributes and the like score, let's now default back to the number of matching attributes, which we do have information on without needing user ratings. And this is sensible, of course, because their data already suggested a great degree of correlation between these two things. This is like setting up a Bayesian prior. If you don't have enough data to estimate something, rely on what you know in the absence of data. So I gave this algorithm a whirl. My favorite board game of all time is Ticket to Ride. That's maybe not a surprise since we use it as an example throughout. 
Um, my particular favorite flavor of Ticket to Ride is Rails and Sales, and there is a separate entry for that on BoardGameGeek.com. True to its promise, the algorithm, which you can find at TryTheseGames.com, suggests a series of games at the very top that I just never heard of. There's Sagrada, Shadows Over Camelot, Elfinland. So I guess part of me is curious whether this is due to my own ignorance of board games or if these really are indeed very niche board games to begin with. I do think I might give one of these a try. If you give the algorithm a try, please let us know how it went. Again, it's at trythesegames.com. And don't forget our email is databytes.podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.